Most immunologists study cellular locomotion and cell shape because they want to understand how it co this contributes to the immune response. So in my lab, it's a bit different. We are kind of turning it around. So we are rather using the immune cell as a mo or the immune system as a model system to understand single cell behavior. So I, I'm personally more interested in cells than in, in, in whole organisms. So my, my, the animal I look at is the cell usually. Interesting direction for me was a bit opposite from Michael, where he started maybe from medicine and then came more into the fundamental cell biology. Um, I started off as a very basic geneticist and then into cell biology through my first mentor, Joel Steinberg, who was really very good light microscopy uh, expert. And then when GFP was invented, I basically got just hooked on the on the imaging part. That was researcher Michael Sixt from the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. And next was Roland Wiedlich-Söldner from the University of Münster in Germany. Hi and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. Today's episode is about the forces that cells exert on one another and the forces acting inside cells. If scientists want to watch cells in action, they use a microscope. If they want to track dynamics, especially the forces, the tugging, pushing, and pulling that goes on in cells, the mechanodynamics, researchers need microscopes and labels. The cell's cytoskeleton is sometimes compared to a railroad track network. It connects point A to B and all through the alphabet, but it's unlike a railroad track and more like, say, the staircases in Hogwarts that have ways of moving about often when people were on them. When the cytoskeleton moves around, it's usually not to play pranks, but to get serious work done inside a cell. So it itself moves and it moves all sorts of things around the cell. It's useful to have labels that can help researchers follow that movement. I heard about a new label called Lilac from the lab of Ron Rock at the University of Chicago. Lilac is an optogenetic version of the label LifeAct. A link to that study is in the show notes, and I interviewed Ron Rock and other researchers for a story I did on the cytoskeleton. A link to that piece called Actin in Action is also in the show notes. As I read about Lilac, I wondered about its parent, so to speak, LifeAct, an established label for live cell imaging. It labels filamentous actin, which is part of the cytoskeleton. So I thought I would seek out the developers of LifeAct to find out a bit more about how it came to be and to hear what they thought about Lilac and to get their perspective on labels they use and the ones they would like to see developed. It was also a good opportunity to ask more generally about the mechanical forces in cells. LifeAct is popular, widely used, and at the same time, in some hands, LifeAct does seem to cause ungreat things, as Ron Rock and colleagues point out in their lilac paper. It can cause shape changes to mesenchymal stem cells, and when used in fruit flies, it can cause sterility in fruit flies. In a little bit, I will share with you what the LifeAct developers said about that. LifeAct is used in labs to perform live cell imaging of the actin cytoskeleton. It was presented to the scientific world in a paper in 2008. But actually, the developers had been sending it around, and you will hear more about that shortly. LifeAct was born from a collaboration between several scientists, Michael Sixt and Roland Wedlich-Söldner and their colleagues. And different fields of study came together, and you will hear about that too shortly. 
At the time, Michel Sixt was a junior group leader at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry in Martinsried near Munich, and he is now at Institute of Science and Technology Austria. Roland Wedlich Söldner was then also a junior group leader at Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry, and he is now at University of Münster in Germany. You were next door at the Max Planck. That's Michel Sixt, and I asked him and Roland Wedlich Söldner about their background and the collaboration mechanics. Michel Sixt was a physician, and Roland Wiedlich Söldner was a yeast geneticist, but they developed other scientific interests also due to the interaction they had with one another. I'm actually, I, I started off as a more as an immunologist, so I'm a, a medical doctor, and then I started to work on immune cells, but I'm interested in immunology, but then I became more and more interested in how the single cell works, actually. Most immunologists study cellular locomotion and cell shape because they want to understand how it co this contributes to the immune response. So in my lab, it's a bit different. We are kind of turning it around. So we are rather using the immune cell as a mo or the immune system as a model system to understand single cell behavior. So I, I'm personally more interested in cells than in, in, in whole organisms. So my, my the animal I look at is the cell usually. And it started off a bit different, but it was also the influence um, that I had, um, including Roland in um, in Martinsried when I had my first um, junior group um, where um, things became more and more basic. And, and so now we are really looking at basic mechanisms of, of how cells um, change shape and migrate. Here is Roland wiedlich Sörder, who also mentions Zena Werb, who was part of the Life Act development too. That's Zena Werb from the University of California, San Francisco, who was spending some time at the Max Planck Institute. Yeah, including also the one of the other authors uh, was just visiting on a sabbatical, Zena Werb, who was also on the Life Act. She was basically in, in, in our institute for that year or on and off for a year. So it was a beautiful, very interactive environment. And interesting direction for me was a bit opposite from Michael, where he started maybe from medicine and then came more into the fundamental cell biology. Um, I started off as a very basic geneticist and then into cell biology through my first mentor, Joe Steinberg, who was really very good light microscopy. Um, experts and then when GFP was invented, I basically got just hooked on the on the imaging part, and so that basically just seeing visually what happens in in a subcellular context live was something that's so fascinating to me that I got stuck with with this kind of approach. So not just a general cell biologist, but I would say that I'm, I'm very much driven by microscopy approaches, basically. What that means is that I'm, I'm not only, I don't care so much about the organism, but I also don't care about the particular cell type that I'm looking at. What I really care about is how fundamental uh, concepts or mechanisms of organization happen on, on in biology. Um, and that happens on all scales. So that can be in an organ, in a, in a tissue, or in a, in a single cell. Um, but very often this boils down to self-organization. So you don't have a nice hierarchy that geneticists tried to teach me initially, where you have a nice regulator that goes down in a linear pathway and a uh, single outcome, but you always have networks. And this yeah. is something that uh, got us in contact with these systems biology or mathematicians that you might have seen in the, in the, in the CV. Um, because to understand network behavior, Nonlinear interactions. You need to to get some some grasp of these concepts in, in, in math and physics. I would say in theoretical physics. So, so this basically colored a little bit the direction of my own research. And with LifeHack, this basically got me from a purely uh, yeast focused and maybe microorganism focused research more into the mammalian side and also 
recently, more recently in, in the medical aspect, um, because we now had a marker that that basically was much more relevant for many people working on mammalian cells. Uh, so I think this became feasible because Michael basically covered that aspect and um, uh, broadened my horizons during the time in, in, in Martin's read a lot. Life Act is for looking at actin and is part of a general area of science called mechanobiology, which looks at the forces, for example, the forces acting on cells. And I wondered about the force in interactions, such as when actin and myosin interact in a cell or when an immune cell goes after an invader. Is it gentle interaction or is it kind of a cellular body slam? Here's Michael Sixt. Interesting yeah, question. Yeah, so I like that. It's, yeah. a, it's nice. When, so what... It's definitely true. It's like when, when, like in in the immune system, there are always cells meeting, and they make the synapses, the transient synapses. And we actually looked a bit at the synapses, and it's really an exchange of of mechanical forces. Also, so we we saw actually that in the synapses, there are the um, antigen presenting cells and the and the lymphocytes, in, and they constantly push into each other. So once one pushes in that triggers a reaction in the other one and that the other one pushes back and then it goes back and forth. And this is how they're kind of massaging each other and, and building a platform for the receptors to, to exchange information. And um, so let's say, especially immune cells, they are relatively weak. They are, do not do major deformations um, um, of the of the connective tissue, which would also be a problem, right? So if you have a fibroblast, the fibroblast it really pulls on the environment and and it it contracts it and and puts tensile forces on the extracellular matrix. Whereas the immune cells they just go through and don't want to change a lot because they constantly migrate through the body and and if they would change a lot, um, that would cause potentially a lot of damage that would have to be repaired. So it depends on the cell type. But I would say a, a, a fibroblast that can really pull on its environment, that, that are significant forces. And this also makes then the, the structure of, say, an interstitium that it's really under tension. And and, and this builds the stability of, of the connective tissue. It depends on the cell type. But in principle, yeah. it's the same muscular system, right, that... That works in muscles. That that works on a, on a in a single cell. I think one one part to add. So one is the the amount of force that you generate, which can be significant for these um, even single cells, but especially if you have then multiple cells acting together. The other thing is how fast this force acts. So when you asked about this bam, uh, like a microorganism smashing into a cell, um, there you have to consider that basically on this on the scale where a microorganism operates. Um, the density of its environment is extremely high, so it rarely goes through air or to free liquid, but it goes through a very gelatinous, very um, viscoelastic environment, so it never has this option of really becoming very fast. So this is also for bacteria, it's often called the swimming behavior in low Reynolds number, I think it's a physical term, um, where basically they, they go through goo, right, So or through honey. Um, oh, yeah. So. The amount of speed they reach is, is fairly low, even if they exert quite significant forces. And the same, even more, would be true for viruses, of course, like COVID. Um, and I think it's, in, in my case, I've been exposed to that a lot by exec, uh, actually a journalist, right? So my wife wrote a book about slime as the hydrogels basically surrounding everything. Awesome. Um, which is, oh, great topic. Great topic. 
Um, yeah, she's also a scientific journalist, so I know basically your side of the job as well. Um, but this basically um, shows in all aspects of biology that that these kind of uh, viscoelastic hydrogels that are either in the, in the matrix and the surrounding or also in the cytosol or the cytoskeleton is another example, beautiful example. It's an active viscoelastic substance. Um, they basically drive a lot of the mechanical side and, and how these interactions work. That also makes perfect sense is uh, going back and forth pushing behavior because you have this kind of elastic elements in between that that uh, connect everything. So you, you probably never have this this simple pushing into each other. You might have a few examples like a bacterium with a comet tail, um, like Shigella or um, Listeria that have comet tails of actin that they hijack from the cell and they really propel themselves like little rockets through the cell and they they zoom around like crazy. This is the, the one time where I really saw fast speeds and, and mechanics building. They, they look like rockets really. So when we image them with the life act, for example, you can see these comet tails beautifully. And they even make curves also, today. What is not really intuitive is is how the interstitium looks like or how the, how the tissue looks like for the cell. Because on the one hand, yes, if you put yourself into the shoes of a cell, then the the fluid medium around it is more or less like honey. So it is really when the cell moves and it stops the motor, then it stops instantaneously because there is no inertia. But so this is one thing. But then if you look at a cell in the tissue, then things are actually, again, totally different because there is actually almost no free water in the tissue. Everything, all the water is bound to, to sugars, right? And and the sh sugars are actually undersaturated um, um, with with water. So if you measure the atmospheric pressure in the skin, in example, it's sub-atmospheric. So there's suction. And um, so there is no free water moving around. And only if you have an edema, then if you push into the skin, then it leaves a dimple behind because then you can push away water. But in a normal skin, you um, you cannot push a dimple and um, because all the water is, is, is bound to sugars. So how it actually looks like the biophysical environment of a cell within a real tissue, we, we don't understand that too well, actually. And and we also lack the the tools to to mimic it in, in, in vitro. I think this is really a challenge to reconstitute a realistic tissue in, in vitro and then look at the cell behavior. Well, one thing to add on this, because it's a very recent uh, thing with the Nobel Prize for uh, Karolin Bertozzi, who partly might be helping to, to solve this issue because she basically um, established click chemistry approaches to modulate this glycocalyx and extracellular matrix components that are usually very difficult to, to manipulate for biologists because they're not genetically coded. And so they're basically very complex sugar molecules um, and this is basically the last frontier of biology. We can manipulate proteins, DNA, uh, lipids to some extent, but sugars are the last thing that are the most difficult because they're the most complex and uh, the, the least easy to manipulate on the genetic level. Um, but her techniques allow that. And, and there are also groups in Germany and, and worldwide now approaching this. Um, so hopefully to create a much more realistic environment, both on the cell surface, the glycocalyx and in the extracellular matrix with hydrogels. There are groups here, for example, in who basically make very defined matrices that you can then manipulate by by light or by chemistry um, right. to change intensity, um, ligand exposure, and so on. That was Roland Wedlich-Soldner, and before him was Michael Sixt. 
Clearly, there are a lot of aspects to explore about the mechanobiology of the cellular environment, and Life Act, the actin label, plays a role in that. I wondered, as they both look back to when they developed Life Act, what motivated them to do so? There was, it seems, a lack of ways to study the cytoskeleton. Here's Roland Wiedlich-Sördner on that aspect. Yeah, I think it's, um, so I can say a few things, maybe Michael can add. So the, the, the most important thing is we didn't plan this. We didn't no, have zero. any way a prediction that this would be so important. So there are a couple of factors that came together and that made it so successful. And I think um, it, if you would plan it again, it probably won't happen, right? So I, I think it's, it's also a lot of uh, randomness uh, associated with it. There was clearly a lack of optimal marker and there's still a lack of optimal um, probe for this because life as other markers as well, is not completely without its effect. And that's part of the basis for Oliver's, uh, for, for, for the new paper, is that there are some defects associated with LIFEC. But uh, the key was that uh, all the known probes that were around had very well documented um, phenotypes. So you cannot really use them for very sensitive processes in the cell. And they were quite... Um, spread out over different uh, systems. So some people used one marker in plants, another used them in yeast. Um, in mammalian cells, you had two or three others. So there was no uniform um, approach. And the, the level of detail of, of our knowledge about these markers were also very different. So people did not spend the time to really characterize the basic properties well. And I think that was one of the key ingredients for the LIFEC paper. We characterized really on various levels, going from biochemistry to cellular um, systems going from from different um, even whole organism and then um, different cell types uh, characterize the, the key properties from of life acts um, in very much detail so people were quite confident that a lot of the questions that they would have asked are already answered um, so uh, and basically coming from two different uh, backgrounds helped to to cover more ground and I was very aware of the actin field at that time we had many years experience working on actin um, and, and what issues would come up. And then there was this very um, simple thing that helped to spread it. We gave it to over 400 groups before it was published. So I was very open in sending out the, the probe and also very detailed information about what to do and not to do. So I gave them a list, including all the problems that are associated with the Life Act, um, right up front. So I didn't try to hide that. And I think that helped a lot to get it accepted. And because I knew people in the field also, I, I probably sent it to, to the key figures already that then propagated it further. I wondered who the first users were, people working on yeast, plants, or people across the board working on eukaryotic cells. So my background was with both plant and fungi, um, bacteria as well, to some extent. Michael from immunology, which is a very important field for this migration. And mammalian cells is, well, it's nearly everyone working on that. So it's not one field, I would say, but uh, we covered nearly everything. Later on, people tried to use it in, in more the malaria and parasitic organisms where it became a bit more limited. But th that's the one thing that we didn't cover. But in terms of um, community, people that I meet on, on meetings, I think that this, this has covered nearly everyone working on acting. I think really before the paper was out, there were already all kinds of organisms with um, expressing life act there yeah, because, because Roland was very uh, proactive in sending it out. And I think that makes made really a difference because the more people use it, um, the more experience is out and the, the more the lower the bar is for others to use it. And then it kind of um, becomes um, 
self-organizing, right? So, yeah. And, and that, that also might help, help in, in this case is that life is so short that many people can simply put it on a primer to make the fiber construct. You don't even need to send out the plasmid. You can basically tell them this is the sequence, um, put it in wherever you want. So this, I think, was an important point in spreading it. LifeAct is a peptide, 17 amino acids long, or rather, I should say, 17 amino acids short. The peptide is fused to GFP, green fluorescent protein, and as a label, it highlights filamentous actin in eukaryotic cells and tissues. Perhaps LifeAct can be made even shorter. Here's Roland wedlich Söldner. And, and we're so, actually working on this right now, and we can cut it down to 11, and that still works. So we can make it much shorter, and it's still a very good probe. Probes can always affect systems. And with LifeAct, I came across some issues, at least in some labs, that, for example, it changes the shape of stem cells when it's used, and it can cause sterility in fruit flies when used in those animals. Ron Rock and his team at the University of Chicago developed an optogenetic version of LifeAct called Lilac. That doesn't mean LifeAct will no longer be used, even if it is an older marker. But, but the, the short point there is, uh, although you say it's an old marker, there, there's no better marker at the moment than LifeAct. And, so, and also with Rock's paper, there will be no better marker. So the, the new paper will give a new option, but it's not a replacement for LifeAct by far. So I, I don't see in any way that it, it can play that role. It's too complex for that. All these defects that are listed somewhere, in the very few cases, they have been clearly attributed to life acts directly. So in many cases, it's simply overexpressing the marker. Sometimes they could clearly show it's only the GFP part that does that. Sometimes it's so complex that by expressing something in a cell, you perturb the balance and uh, lead to some defects that are completely unrelated to the actin marker. In some cases, they did show basically only with the life act itself, uh, you have the defect, but then you might have um, added a few control experiments to lower expression and gotten around that problem. So it's clear from the beginning, which was also in the letter that I sent everyone, is you overexpress massively life act, you absolutely misorganize life actin and you kill every cell. So that's very easy to achieve if you have too much of it. Um, so it was always clear that you need to find the right amount so that you can still see it, but you don't disturb actin. And if you make stable cell lines, for example, for mammalian cells, this is automatically done by the cell because they will somehow adapt so that they can propagate and, and divide. Um, so you don't need to do all this the selection. Um, you can do fax analysis or fax sorting if you want to, to really use a very fine population. Um, but the simple fact that we can make a whole life act mouse that expresses life act nearly in every single cell type that is absolutely happy. There was no obvious phenotype, right? So we didn't go into all the details of behavior, but there was no phenotype whatsoever. That means they can completely live happily without, uh, or with, with a certain amount of life. And it's still the only mouse that survives it. So if you do like, if you do actin GFP, there are actin GFP mice where we directly couple um, G actin to, to GFP and they they are very very dim you it's very difficult to detect um because simply if you would express it higher the 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 animals die so uh, to my knowledge like um uh, the life act mouse is the only one that um that is reporting acting and 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 survives it right yeah. there's no other mouse that's around that is comparable that's true yeah so there's it's got a very small mouse um uh, that was extremely green but it's also if you just express um, gfp and make a homozygous um, um then uh, then they also don't survive it so it's okay. But of course, um, yeah, it's it's a reporter, right? So it's like every um, um, 
every approach to measure something has its side effect. So one you have to know your system um and and you really have to know what what you want to observe um in order to control for the um for the possible artifacts you you're generating i think there's no general rule one one can apply here right when using life act michael six has some general advice do the right controls in your experiment, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, of course, that's yeah. The, um, so, that's a message, right? Yeah. yeah. Very often, the first figure in a paper would be repeating what has been done, but in exactly that system that you're going to use the rest of the paper so that you basically make sure that your baseline is all solid. In case of LIFEAC, just having, you mentioned the 1,800 citations, but I think for the last 10 years or so, people have stopped citing it because it's been so ubiquitous. So there are probably six to 7,000 papers, of, including life. So you have all the information you could ever imagine around there. And I have, never, I have not seen acting groups without life acts label, at least partly using that um, in, in recent years anymore. So it's it's basically everywhere. Um, so it's also the amount of information available on it is uh, basically far beyond uh, one order of magnitude higher than anything else you have. Um, and not a single report in there showed that there's a fundamental problem with having the life act. And the, the be most beautiful um, experiments are really the recent publications of the structure. So there are two structure papers on cryo-EM that showed life a decorated active filament, um, where they show with high resolution. And they uh, to get these structures, they needed to decorate filaments 100%. That means every single subunit of actin has a life act bound to it. It's probably far more than you would ever get in a cell. And they showed that even with this saturation, you do not change actin structure at all. It's completely identical to the free actin filament. So that means LIFEAC doesn't do anything to actin. The only thing it does, it binds there, obviously. And what they have also shown with many other similar structures is that nearly every actin binding protein goes to the same place. So there's one groove, one spot on the actin surface that seems to be the, the common uh, attachment site for nearly every site binding protein. So there's crosslinkers, there's myosin, there's cofilin that, that turns over actin and life act. Also toxins from bacteria that bind to this. And uh, beautiful in the structural study, they even show that life can protect actin from these toxins, for example, which otherwise would kill the cell, um, because they compete for the same binding site. And then that's the big advantage of life. It's so weak in its binding that um, the affinity is so low that basically it does not prevent all these essential factors in the cell to bind. So the main thing you have to play with is the, the affinity. There's probably nice. no you to bind anywhere else because otherwise nature would have done it. And uh, you have dozens of different domains. They all go to the same place for some reason. And so probably there's not, nothing else available on actin because it's so densely packed in the helix already. Then I asked them both about LILAC, the optogenetic version of Life Act from the Rock Lab. Yeah, so we both reviewed it, but I think I um, my time with it was was not so long ago. And basically, in the end, I accepted it, obviously, so I like it. The main thing is, I, I think, because Life Act is so well established and you have so much detailed information, including the structure now, it was possible to basically design, rationally design this combination with, uh, with the eyelid or with the optogenetic tool. Um, but it's also a really cool idea to just bring two pretty short peptides that's uh, very complex in their conformation together to make them really controlled in their interaction with the, with their ligands here, respective ligands. So I wasn't expecting this to be so easy for LIFAC because it binds to a very dense uh, surface on actin. There's not much space for it. So to put this, uh, this other peptide right next to it in a way that it can still be controlled 
um, was to me already not intuitive and I think quite uh, quite interesting that it works on principle. Um, then obviously because of these slight defects that LifeAct has, you might want to monitor actin at some level um, during your experiments. And if you're looking at, let's say, more complex systems like or tissues, you sometimes have to monitor them over weeks and months. Um, so you might want to know at some point how is the actin organized, but you don't want to constantly express life act because you would have on the long term some deterioration of the development of differentiation and so on. So it adds up basically, even if life act on the short term in our experiments might be okay, having them on, on longer experiments might, might uh, lead to problems. Oh, and so by the, the way, short term and long term, so maybe an hour relative. versus... Yeah, so I think these organoid experiments very often they go over weeks, uh, but they wouldn't continuously image them. So that it would be enough that every three days you have a look and basically look at some characteristics. And actin is a very nice marker, not just for actin, but for cell shape, for lots of organelles. So you see very often actin associated with endosomes, with ER, with Golgi. You can see basically everything in the cell with this single marker. Sometimes just having it as a negative marker in the cytosol would also help. And the main advantage that they see for simply as a marker for for experiments like we do every day on the short term minutes or, or hour time scale, I didn't see that much. So I think that simply by tuning the concentration of life act, you can get rid of nearly all the effects. So we try to replicate some of the defects that people have published, and we see, don't see them simply. So we can go over two orders of magnitude of life act expression and have no not even a, the slightest measurable defects on cell morphology or cell behavior on, on, on some weird. Context. That's kind yeah. of weird. Huh, I, I think it's it's just sometimes to become more sensitive. So you might need to put them into an environment where they have a more elongated cell shape, then they become more sensitive. You need more uh, force exerted by myosin, uh, where usually under, under condition it's not not uh, so true, so so critical. So. I don't find that too surprising, but it generally means that life act is not a, uh, a central problem. It can be tuned by conventional means of expression level or um, maybe the different fluorophores that you add might also make a difference. Um, so, uh, and I didn't see a pressing issue there to be solved that would make it a, like a revolution now with the lilac. So the, the lilac really gives you this one option that was completely new for a particular type of experiments, niche experiments, I would call them, but still important ones. Um, where you would have no option at the moment to have like a completely non-detrimental marker. So those, those are the, just for babies, it's the dark phase, right? The dark phase. Yes, when you, dark phase would be completely in, in uh, non-functional and non-disturbing. Non, uh, I see. Cool. convincing in the paper also that basically they show if it's off, basically they find no phenotype of, of this expression. Mm -hmm doesn't mean that it's always true. So this will, again, be have to be validated by every experimentalist uh, for their own system. So but just one could also potentially use it to to bring something acutely to actin, right? To to bring something else in. Um, um, yes. If you want to sequester other molecules or, or um, 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 acutely localize other molecules to the cytoskeleton. So that, that could, of course, be... Yeah, th there might be questions where one... Could yeah. use this option, yeah. So there, there, I think it's basically gives gives a new entry point, but it basically would be a future paper showing how that could be applied. Yeah. Similar to Bifact, so we've tried to use it as a like a simple anchor to bring things to actin, but it's non-trivial to to use this in a reproducible manner. Mm. So you could basically develop drugs on that basis, just like Lifeac could protect from certain toxins. You can also basically use Lifeac to locally or temporarily activate certain certain compounds. 
Perhaps, just as one example, it could be used to selectively affect muscle. And yes, you could basically then affect something selectively for muscle. If you find like a, a drug or a treatment that would only be active, let's say if you have a lot of calcium that constantly is activated, that would perfectly work. Yeah, subcellular targeting of, of um, uh, effectors is, is definitely something that could be interesting. Yeah. As an aside from the discussion about actin, I asked about a recent paper from the sixth lab, which was about the forces in a swelling lymph node. For example, due to infection, a lymph node can swell to 10 times its size in just a few days. Michael Sixt and his colleagues looked at the mechanosensing response involved here, looking at two transcription factors that shuttle between cytosol and cell nucleus in response to tension on the cytoskeleton. Actually, a lot of people do that. So we use it as a basically as a reporter for is there tension on the cells or not? So are the cells under tension? Because when the lymph node swells, then um, the the skeleton of the lymph node, basically the fibroblasts there, they get um, extended because the lymph node swells very quickly and then there's tension on this internal structural cells and they get under tension and as an effect, these um, transcription factor shuttles. But that has been shown by other people that it does the shuttling. And in, in this case, we just um, um, uh, um, did, did stainings of it. And uh, so this is actually, that's not too tricky to do, but it's a, it's a way to read out an indirect readout for intracellular forces. And, and this is in general something um, where we are still lacking direct reporters um, to measure intracellular forces and also actually extracellular forces. So um, there are a few people who develop tension sensors and so on. But I think this would be super interesting if we could make a life act that reports um, the tension on the um, uh, on, on the cytoskeleton, a variant of that, so that you really know what kind of forces is the cell producing and experiencing. In this case, the reporters, the labels, were proxies, indirect readouts. The cell is under tension and then tons of things happen. And in the end, this transcription factor goes to the nucleus and we use it as a reporter. But that's not a very satisfying thing in the end. It would be much more satisfying to directly measure what is the um, um, force on the cell and how much, as you asked at the beginning, right, how much forces does the cell actually produce and under which conditions and um, how does it, does this relate then to the deformation of the environment that, where we again don't know exactly what are the mechanical properties. So finding reporters for that will be um, will be really interesting. Since we were on the subject of wish lists, I thought I should ask what else is on their wish list for the future, also as a way to hear what people might consider working on, including in their labs, but also beyond their labs. First, Roland Wedlich-Söldner. So in the very narrow field of what wish list we would have for the actin imaging or analysis, there are very clear things that are still missing that LIFAC cannot cover. And we were touching on that before, because LIFAC is so weakly binding, it basically goes on and off in a millisecond timescale. So basically, while you can see actin labeled by LIFAC, each individual LIFAC doesn't say for more than a few milliseconds. So oh, that wow. Track the actin dynamics directly using LIFAC, because um, if you look at a growth of an actin filament, the LIFAC will simply follow that, but you cannot really look at the, the turnover. 
So there's still no marker whatsoever that does not directly interfere with the dynamics. So actin itself can be labeled, but it's not functional in, in, in full sense. So there's no marker to look at in, to actin turnover in a cell or in a living environment. And also correlated or um, linked to that to measure what is the actual pool of monomers that is available to the cell at any given time and, and position. Because we know there's a lot of actin around, but most of that is not available for um, making anything useful out of it. They're basically just sequestered by other proteins and sticking in the cytosol and cannot be used. So there's a usable pool and nobody knows how big that actually is. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of attempts to measure it. Very complicated means take years of work and in the end they're not satisfying. So there's a clear big gap still in the field that LIFAC cannot address. And yeah, actually there's ideas how to maybe uh, approach it. There's ways to maybe label actin directly that that's not interfering and we've tried that. There again, yeast is very helpful because um, you can basically replace endogenous proteins simply um, more simply than a mammalian system, but um, that's unsolved. And yeah, I'm not sure how that or when that, that will happen, but that's a very narrow uh, wish list, of it, obviously. And he also pointed out another probe, one from the lab of Uri Manor at the Salk Institute. This other thing that was in Nature Methods not so long ago from Uri Manor was on basically a life act or nanobody, not life act itself, but an actin binding probe attached to mitochondria to, to organelles to see subset actin there. Um, but they always have this issue that you might concentrate actin by simply binding to it. And the same thing with the nuclear localization life act, just by putting it into the nucleus, you suddenly have like 10 times the smaller volume, meaning 10 times higher concentration, which mm -hmm. then leads directly to these phenotypes of life acts stabilizing actin by by blocking cofilin, for example. And then you get actin in the nucleus, yes, but only because the life act is dead. So that's what you didn't want to generate in the first place. So there was a lot of controversy in the first papers that used that until they could develop uh, appropriate controls that it really happened. And here is Michael Sixt and his wish list for the future. When you think of actin, it's it's everywhere in the cell, right? So it's the most abundant um, protein in, in um, eukaryotic cells, right? And um, so the cell is full of it. And I think it would be really interesting to get better tools to look at subcellular subsets of, of actin, right? Just selectively look at actin on the mitochondria, on the different organelles and so on. And um, people have done that for plasma membrane, actually binding a um, actin marker to the plasma membrane to selectively look at what is actually directly at the um, below the membrane. And, and I think this in the nucleus, that's another thing. There is actin in the nucleus, but it's so little that you never see it um, um, because you have to crank up the volume so much that every, everything else shines. So people did um, put life act in the nucleus by putting a nuclear localization site on, and then you suddenly see the actin in the nucleus. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guests were Michael Sixt at the Institute of Science and Technology Austria and Roland Wedlich-Söldner from the University of Münster. The music used in this project is Funky Energetic Intro by Winnie the Mook, licensed from filmmusic.io, and Rice Crackers from Aves, licensed from artlist.io. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the University of Münster, or the Institute of Science and Technology Austria, didn't pay for this podcast, and nobody paid to be in this podcast. 
This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.